As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up on The Audible today, we go deep in the weeds as signing day approaches. We also talk about coaches and politics, as well as Jim Harbaugh spurring more NCAA rules changes. That's all today on The Audible. Welcome to the Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. All right, Stu, we are about a week away from National Signing Day, which is a holiday for a lot of college football fans and diehards, and and I feel like I fall into that category. And our guest today is somebody I worked with back in my CBS days. He is way deep in the weeds of recruiting, and he is Ryan Barto. He is the National College Football Recruiting Insider for 247 Sports, and he is all over all things recruiting. And Ryan, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. Hey, it's an honor to be here, Bruce and Stu, and uh, everything is great down here in paradise in Fort Lauderdale. Not a bad place to be based right now. You know what? I'm only here probably eight of the 12 months because I'm all over the country and the nation's hot spots. Like last year, I think I made 362 high school stops, probably more than any college coach. And I spend a lot of my time in Southern California, where you guys reside, as along with Dallas. But I have Jersey all the way down to Virginia Beach, the Carolinas, where I used to live, Central Florida. But I probably uh, spend most of my time in Paradise, where they have the most D1 guys. And it, it serves as great motivation when you fly out to a place, go through 30 schools. You know by the end of the week you'll be back living a block off the beach in Fort Lauderdale. Before we get into this year's class, you know, I had mentioned uh, your time around Clemson. I think you spent close to a decade there and started covering the team even before Dabo became the head coach. How have you seen that that program elevated, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, but even in other aspects of it, covering it as close as you did? Well, it it started on top because they got the new uh, AD, they got the new president, and Terry Don took a chance with Dabo, but most of all, they reinvested resources. They got the new West End zone there. Now they got this great facility that's going to make Clemson, South Carolina, which is, quite frankly is probably the more one of the more boring places in the country, that much more exciting when you go on the campus and you have this facility that has a slide and water slides and a mini golf course and a haircut facility and movie theaters, all the stuff that 17-year-olds want right next to Death Valley. So they're, they're ahead of the curve, and they've sold their product, and it kind of starts with their administration and feeds down with the enthusiasm of the head coach. Plus, they've spent more on coordinators than anybody else in the country, so you can get a Brent Venables, you can get a Chad Morris, and that's two of the big reasons why they went from eight wins a season now to 11 and 12, and now the kings of the college football world. All right, so in terms of recruiting, I'm looking at your guys' rank, player rankings right now, and it looks like mm-hmm. only one of the top 24 recruits is uncommitted as of now, and that's Marvin Wilson, the big uh, defensive tackle. So heading into signing day, what are kind of the areas of suspense uh, for you? What are the top stories you're watching? 
you know what, there, there isn't as many. And there's maybe five or six, but this year there's so many of the top players that are already enrolled. So a lot of this suspense was at the U.S. Army game, at the Under Armour game, but a lot of it was in the fall official visits. So plus these kids are making their decisions earlier and earlier. So you see decisions now, a lot of them, a lot of times before 4th of July. So a lot of these kids, these blue chippers are off the board and they're done. So outside of a couple maybe flips that we're expecting on deck here, there isn't as much meat on the bone as there was in past years. Since you teased it a little bit, can you give us some ideas of guys you said could flip in that top 30 or so who you'd say, oh, keep an eye on this. This could get interesting in the last week. Well, um, I know that uh, longtime Ohio State commit by star lineman Wyatt Davis, who um, a lot of the listeners will probably remember their uh, his dad was Alvin Mack from the program. His grandpa was Willie Davis, the NFL Hall of Famer from the Packers. He still has UCLA, Cal, and most of all, Oregon coming on the in-help. He takes a visit, especially to Oregon this weekend. They will be a major factor there because his first offer was from Alabama, from Mario Cristobal, and his recruiter left. Uh, Ohio State to go to Minnesota. So that's kind of opened the ball for uh, him. So he's definitely a guy I'm watching for a signing day splash, potential flip. Is it a foregone conclusion that Alabama will finish with the number one class again? Seven years in a row. And Ohio State's class is about as good as they can get it because they have some of the best you can get in the country in terms of Jeff Okuda, the top corner, Baron Browning, the top linebacker, their class is loaded up and down, but Bama's uh, one of the big reasons, not only are they signing some of the best in the country, including the top receiver, Jerry Judy, the top dual threat quarterback out of Hawaii and Tua Tagaloga. Most of all, they're going to sign over 25. So that's the difference between the two classes there. If you counted them up one through 20, Ohio State is probably better, but they They'll be uh, in the clubhouse by noon on signing day where Alabama will still be fighting for kids until 3 or 4 o'clock that day. Yeah, we should note that Ohio State on your ranking, it's Alabama 1, Ohio State 2, Georgia 3, Michigan 4, Florida State 5. But Ohio State has the highest average ranking for per player. It's just that they have five fewer commitments than Alabama. Mm-hmm. They have the probably the best quality. Now, I think... Man-to-man, the best quality in the country is actually Stanford. They might only go 15 or 16 deep, but they have our top two guys in the country, offensive tackles, Forrest Sorrell from Washington, Walker Little from Texas. These guys are 6'8", 305, and going to the same school. So, I mean, that's the hardest offer to get in the country. You need a minimum of a 26 ACT just to get offered there. And uh, they're proving it once again, man. It, it, it boggles my mind every year, but they're getting legit four and five star dudes there. And uh, they only take a couple, but they take very, very elite ones, especially quarterbacks. You mentioned uh, the top uncommitted guy out there is Marvin Wilson from Texas. I heard he's going to be visiting Charlie Strong at USF. How do you see this thing playing out over the next week? Yeah, he was supposed to be in Tampa this past weekend. That did not transpire. I talked to a couple of contacts this morning. I don't think he will go through on that visit with Charlie. Florida State is in there really good. He has a great relationship with two Ohio State early enrollees and Okuda and Baron Browning, two other Texas kids. So I think Ohio State is definitely in there deep. But my crystal ball uh, for Marvin Wilson is on LSU. His family's originally from Louisiana. Um, Eddie Orgeron has made him a priority. That's the first in-home visit he did when he was named the head coach. And obviously that position is his baby. And this is another war daddy. And uh, I think it'd be a surprise if he did not pick the Bayou Bengals. A little under the radar, but it's it's interesting to me. You know, when Matt Rule got hired at Baylor, they had one commitment and everybody was you know, saying this was going to be doom and gloom for Baylor. Um, I see he got, he, he's been rolling up commitments. He got 19 now. Um, are these good players or is he just trying to fill out the class at this point? 
it's probably more commits than I thought he was going to take. I thought he was going to take the five to maybe 12 to 15. That way, uh, in the next two cycles, he could sign a full class of 25. But they're signing quality. I mean, Xavier Newman, he could have went to Texas, Colorado, LSU. So that was a good get out of DeSoto. I, th- I like some of the hires he made, getting Joey McGuire, who I thought is as good a high school coach as you're going to find in Texas. He's really going to help them in that South Dallas area. Going up to Jersey, a place that Baylor usually doesn't recruit at all, and beating out Virginia Tech for Harrison Hand, that was a good get. Just yesterday, they got Galvin Holmes from uh, Northwestern and Justin there. He was probably going to go to Nebraska, and Baylor flipped him. So I think this class probably a little deeper and they needed it to be, but um, there's some quality in there. It's not just taking guys to take guys. Just curious, I'm looking at the team rankings, and I know that you guys do you know, compilations, not just your rankings that you factor into it. Who would you right. say is the biggest surprise team to be in the top 25 where they are right now? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Obviously, Stanford, just because of the season they had, the hardest offer to get. And uh, they only are only have 13 commits, so that's definitely a surprise that sticks out. Um, UCLA always surprise. UCLA, UCLA bad. UCLA. Oh, I thought you were going Maryland, Bruce. Well, they have 28 guys, and it's the, coming off the first year of momentum. I mean, isn't that right? It's a lot of guys, right, Ryan? Yeah. And Maryland's class, I love because they hired all these guys even before London left there, but like. Azar and Chris Beatty and Walt Bell and all these guys have ties to that DMV area. And they're actually beating out a lot of uh, programs, especially for the four-star offensive tackles, the four-star corners in D.C. and uh, suburban D.C. So I love their class. I think they got their quarterback of the future in Kasim Hill. I think they're in great position to get another four-star DB in Castro Fields coming up. But uh, you got Deion Jones, the top kid in Washington, D.C. So I think their class is legit. And I think they inherited, obviously, a tough roster there because I still want not allow a lot of those assistants to offer kids until he personally watched three game films. So that put that Maryland program behind the gamut a little bit. Durkin is more proactive. He knows he has to be one of the first three offers, especially in the DMV area. And so I think that's a program that the talent level on that roster will definitely flip in in the next three years. One thing I'm surprised to see is, now I realize this could change a lot before signing day, but Florida is a program that under Zook and Urban Meyer, uh, back to Spurrier, you always saw them in the top five, I feel like. And they are 24th, right? right? They finished outside the top 10 last year. They're 24th now. And I, and I get emails all the time from Florida fans grumbling about McElwain not being a good enough recruiter. What's going on there? Uh, they are struggling. Now, Randy Shannon has done a good job in South Florida getting Kadeem Telford, getting Kimar Gamble. Uh, they'll get C.J. Henderson from Miami Columbus, who's the fastest kid in Dade County, a four-star corner that's on deck coming up here. But they're struggling, and they're struggling on the defensive line. They had three D-tackle commits. They lost one to Colorado. They lost one to Penn State. They lost one to Oregon. So they're struggling, and it's a down year for defensive linemen, too. So you're seeing a lot of those guys that they inherited from the Muschamp era on defense. They're starting to leave the program, and they're not replacing them there. And, you, and most of all, the biggest concern for them is they've missed now, I think, three or four years in a row on their QB recruiting and they don't have one coming in again. So you can only get so far, and I think this staff has overachieved getting to the SEC East, which has been as down as we've ever seen for two years in a row. Eventually you would think that would catch up to them, not having a even subpar QB, but they, they, they have a great program to sell there. They're just not able to um, – really get a QB to jump in the boat right now, which is concerning for that fan base and definitely the administration now. Yeah, to echo Ryan's point, it's interesting. Kentucky was is 23rd in the in the 247 rankings, and Florida is 24th. Obviously, Kentucky had a nice year, got to a uh, 
got to a bowl game. Mark Stoops did a good job. It's just still kind of surprising to see that juxtaposition. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I know these aren't the, the best kind of questions to ask somebody without a little heads up, but you are based there in Fort Lauderdale. That place is loaded with talent. Give me three yeah. guys who are not four or five star guys. You're like, watch this guy at the next level. He's going to make an impact probably before too long. Maybe a two or a three star guy you're pretty high on. Um, I think Amari Carter will start at free safety from uh, Palm Beach Gardens. He was the Palm Beach Player of the Year. He'll start for the Hurricanes, uh, whether he's ready or not. I think Trajan Bandy will start at nickel. He's a straight South Florida dog from Miami Columbus. He'll help the Hurricanes right away. I'm really big on him. I think he's really underrated. Mm, Gosh, there's so many of them. I think Mike Harley, who just decommitted, I I loved him even more when he was committed to uh, West Virginia because I think he's a great scheme fit there. Look for him to eventually commit to Miami. Miami's actually going to finish pretty strong here and get probably six down the stretch here and it'll be their best signing day finish in, in quite some time. But Mike Harley is a guy that's got a little Santana Moss to him that was in the U.S. Army game and, and showed out there. So those are three guys that uh, may not have ideal size, but they have huge confidence, huge upside. And like most South Florida kids, all their upside in front of them. How many St. Thomas kids end up signing Division One FBS offers, you think? Mm, probably 17 to 20. They have right now 32 um, from seniors to sophomores that have legit Division One offers. When I go to that school, and usually I'll hit six or seven a day, but for me, it takes probably two and a half hours just to interview those kids, and I'm talking two minutes a shot, like no huddle, no mercy, scoop, let's go. And those guys... I mean, they just, they keep them. And most of the kids in Broward just flock to that school, whether they got guys or not. Like, just to give you an example, their third string tailback, Keyshawn Bryant, he visited Pitt over the weekend. He's a South Carolina commit. He'll probably wind up at Pitt, maybe Iowa, but he's their third string back. Their first string back is going to go to Illinois. Their second string back is um, a stud sophomore that has 25 offers. They have seven D1 receivers, so... Yeah, it's nice to be located uh, right down the road. That's insane. The third string string running back is committed to go an SEC school. Third string. Yes. How do they even, how do the coaches know how good he is? Like, how do they, there can't be much tape of the third string running back. Well, remember every day they're out here practicing and at their practices in the spring, it's like being at the convention where you got 15 to 20 college coaches out there and they're going full bore. And they're going full bore against a defense that has 20 D1 guys. So they're getting better and proving themselves against legit competition every day. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I was going to bring up the fact that about a year ago on this podcast, Bruce and I took a lot of heat from Texas fans because we kind of looked at their low ranking and thought, ooh, Charlie Strong not doing well. And then he closed, um, you know, right. incredible fashion. Maybe not to that extreme, but are there, is there a team out there that could make a, a big move in their rankings between now and signing day? Probably the same team that has the last three years, the USC Trojans. They have 17 right now. They'll probably sign 24. And of the seven that are left, they're all will be minimum four-star recruits. I'm talking guys like they could potentially get uh, Big J out of uh, – Utah, Marlin, uh, these two big poly uh, D tackles. I know I've messed up their last name, but um, they have the number one and number two D tackles in on campus uh, this past weekend. I crystal balled them both to the Trojans. I mean, they're in great shape to get five-star receiver Joe Lewis, four-star safety Isaiah Palomalu from uh, Phoenix. So I think they're going to close. They always close strong there. And uh, they're going to do it again, man. They, they're number 11 right now. They will finish in the top five. There's no doubt. And so we mentioned Texas a minute ago. How is Tom Herman doing? Obviously, he was recruiting a lot of kids in in that state at Houston. Uh, we see they're just outside your top 25. Do you expect them to close with a flourish? No. No, I don't. I He hasn't been able to keep, and, and this is no fault of his because he's up against the wall, 
but um, in terms of the time, he, he wasn't able to convince Walker Little to stay in state, not go to Stanford or Baron Browning, not to go to Ohio State. But um, you know what surprised me more so is he stole two from Chad Morris and SMU. So, I mean, maybe those were great evals by Chad, but at the same time, at Texas, that kind of shows you their brand in that state isn't what it once was. When I go through Dallas every spring and fall, the hot team usually in there is Texas A&M because they can sell the SEC. Then you have programs like Baylor, TCU, scoring 50 points a game. Kids want to play in that. Oklahoma recruits that area heavily. They win a ton. So Texas is kind of the fourth or fifth option. So Tom is going to have to use his ties with those high school coaches and rely heavily on them and really crank up that offense to, to get the appeal of a lot of these kids. Because right now, um, he's there for a reason, because obviously their brand is not hot right now, and uh, he's going to have to uh, you know, definitely reverse those fortunes. That So, like, we know A&M under someone has become a great recruiting school. There's no question about that, and, and that they've stolen a lot mm-hmm. of the thunder from Texas. But I think a lot of us just assume it's such a big brand that – as long as you got the right coach there, you know, Mac Brown basically picked which 25 players he wanted. He, towards the end, he didn't right. really pick right. Um, you're saying that the kids are in the state of Texas are more interested in Baylor and TCU right now? Well, um, in, the, in just in the DFW area, they're realizing they don't have to go all the way to Austin. I mean, the top QB, uh, or arguably the top QB in the state, Sean Robinson, He's going to TCU. Uh, Baylor, obviously, putting up a bunch of points. They they were able to get kids away from Texas. And then um, the list goes on. Texas A&M running a wide-open offense. They were able to – plus, they're the only team in the state that could sell, hey, you can come here and play in the SEC, too. So, Texas is not – it's not as easy as uh, Mac once had it there, where he can kind of just cherry-pick. I think it's still the flagship by far. But um, just the rise of those other programs have made it harder. Yeah, sticking in your own backyard, I'm curious. He's, he created a lot of attention around the national title game in the week before. Have, have we cre- Has Lane Kiffin created much waves on the recruiting trail in his month at, at FAU? The only time I've heard of him showing up um, at a school in South Florida, he's actually been on the road mostly in Central Florida, Dallas, and Cali. But he did show up uh, on day one at St. Thomas Aquinas, had um, a film crew with him with Showtime that obviously wasn't allowed in at St. Thomas, uh, did not have the flip-flops going, but had the shorts going. Didn't, for whatever reason that day, was not wearing an FAU shirt. So probably none of this surprises us. But um, this is going to be must-see TV. He's in the land of temptation. He's single now. He's got his brother here. He's got younger Bryles. They're right up the road in Boca. Whether FAU is playing or not, this is going to be uh, must-see TV for many reasons. Uh, There had been talk about a possible reality show. Have you seen a lot of that, or is just that one-time thing that Showtime was around him? (laughs) Nah, that's the only glimpse of that. But, um, yeah, if I need to see that, I just need to leave my front yard. Um, probably after 7 o'clock at night and head up the road, and I can see plenty of that. Well, the last I saw was that they're definitely working with Showtime, but it's not necessarily for the uh, same series that Notre Dame and Florida State were in. But uh, no question. I, I think there's no question they'll have some sort of reality show by fall. Ryan, there was a, two other things I think we would ask. One was, which assistant coach move has created the biggest ripple effect in the 2017 recruiting class? Mm, I think some of them haven't, you haven't seen it yet. I think Cristobal is going to be able to uh, put a dent in UCLA's recruiting uh, once he really lays some groundwork in Southern California and kind of outworks uh, a laid-back, non-competitive recruiting area. So I think that was a big move. Um, hmm. Trying to think out loud here. Just uh, I mean, LSU being able to keep Corey Raymond as DB coach, I think he's as good a secondary coach as you're going to find. And that kept all those studs in the boat there. So that was a big move as well. Any that you guys were thinking? 
Sounds like Cristobal to Oregon, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously getting Jim Levitt. Um, I love the D-line coach they hired. They just got some commits because of him the other night. Uh, the Kevin Wilson move, I think, is going to have an effect that you'll see more in the 2018 class. Kids are going to want to play in that spread tempo offense for Ohio State. I think it's already had appeal for a lot of their commits this cycle. I think that's one of the better, if not the best, coordinator hire this offseason. So that's been pretty good as well. Just haven't seen any um, so far to this extent. Okay, hey, they just hired this guy. Bam, he got a bunch of commits. So my last thing was a little bit bigger picture. Uh, last week at the NCAA convention, um, they pushed ahead. I mean, it hasn't been formally approved yet. It will in the spring, but big recruiting uh, reform package. And the most notable part is there. It looks like there finally will be an early signing date, not the one in June, which nobody understood why that was. Um, ever in the works, but the one in mid-December, the same date that JUCO players currently sign. What's this going to look like next year? My assumption is that 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 will just become the new signing day. Yeah, I mean, obviously the big topic was the 10th assistant, if that's going to come through in April or if it's going to go in effect in January 1st. In terms of uh, if they can get it in December, what all these coaches are bat- combating right now is everybody commits before their senior season starts, except the five-star guys that everybody will wait for, just for security purposes so they don't get hurt during their season and then they have something to fall back on. Well, when December 1st hits, everybody's still got three or four official visits, so the whole process kind of hits restart. We just saw that the other day with Mike Harley from St. Thomas. He had been in the boat with West Virginia for six months. They thought they're getting this Army All-American. He blows up as a senior. Here comes UCLA. Here comes Florida. Here comes Miami. The big boys come in. They recruit him and his family. There goes West Virginia out the boat. The same thing happened with Syracuse with Josh Palmer. Got trumped by Tennessee, UCLA, Ohio State. So, if you have you put in that signing period in December, you can lock these guys in. In, in essence, you keep it into one recruiting period, where right now you basically have two, one before their senior season and one after. It'll be interesting how it plays out. I always thought an early signing period would be like September 1st, and then it would be exactly what you talked about, kids who've, who've committed before their senior season and are absolutely sure – that that's where they want to go and they want to be done with official visits and, and flips. But you'd have to have so many waivers there because of the coaching changes that have happened. Well, that's going to be messy even with this, right? Because right. how many, we saw Cal fire a coach in January, like kids are going to sign in December and then the coach is going to get fired. Yes. And, and football is such a developmental sport that a lot of their best stuff is in their senior film. So a lot of these places it goes, both ways where they see a guy they didn't see great effort or improvement on senior film. Well, then all of a sudden they cool on that kid when he doesn't have that offer anymore. So the two way street, I I mean, we're just talking about it from the college aspect, but from the kids aspect, high school coach aspect, it's equally as strong. All right, Ryan, what's the best way for people to follow you on uh, all on your social media platforms? Yeah, you can follow me for all the latest uh, National College Football Recruiting Scoop at Ryan Bardo, R-Y-A-N-B-A-R-T-O-W. And uh, that's the latest breaking news in terms of offers, commits, official visits, any developments in terms of college football recruiting. And I assume you will be prolific on there on signing day. I'm prolific on there year-round, 24-7 <laughs> is not the name of the company. That's the name of the uh, work shift. There you go. Ryan, we thank you so much for coming on the Audible today. No problem, man. Both of you guys are the best, and I'll come on anytime. You have me on in a week, and I'll have more juice for you. All Sounds right. Good. Thanks, Ryan. We'll get back to the podcast in a second, but Bruce, we're excited to talk yet again about our new sponsor, Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a great meal delivery service, and in particular, they're known for their fresh, high-quality ingredients that make a real difference It's important to know where your food comes from. And for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. 
This is my favorite part, Bruce. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. Wow, that's kind of like your wardrobe at Fox, isn't it? You never wear the same tie twice, and you never get the same recipe within a year. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients, and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So check out this week's menu and get your first three, first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com audible. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com audible. All right, Bruce, I referenced at the end the NCAA recruiting reform package. That wasn't the only topic that came up uh, at the NCAA convention last week. Jim Harbaugh spring break practice last year at IMG Academy was so controversial that they had to make a rule banning it this year. What do you think about that? You know, I'm not surprised because it caused so much attention and everything. I'm not against the rule. I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't say, I'm not against what they did. Because I think if it's educational and other schools can do it, you know, more power to them if they can do it. Because I think it's kind of a, just a, a myth that the NCA is trying to uphold to say, okay, we're trying to t- keep things as uniform as possible for the 127 or 128 Division One programs. Because they're all not the same. They all uh, can offer different things and do offer different things. So, so why not just let them let them uh, try to better the student athletes as much as possible. You know, in college sports and, the, and especially with this NCAA legislation, anytime anybody does something new and unusual, nobody ever stops to say like, well, let's really think about whether or not that's a good idea or not. It's just like, this is not how it's done. We need to come up with a rule banning it. I, I don't know that this was harming anybody. No, I think the, the people who are probably resistant to it are the people who didn't want him in their backyard at that time of year. Or it makes people have to work harder or spend more time on it. And that's one thing that coaches feel like. And they do spend tons of hours working. I get it. It's not a normal 40-hour work week. but um, So that's added to it. It's all very self-interest oriented. Yeah, I thought one thing that was interesting is they there is a um, committee of students at these NCAA conventions, student-athletes, who represent the voice of the athletes and they actually voted overwhelmingly to keep it. So this idea that uh, you know that we're protecting the athletes from having their spring break taken away, the players pretty much said overwhelmingly, actually, we're fine with it if it's to do something kind of cool like this. And uh, well, before it goes away, apparently Harbaugh is going to, because it doesn't go into effect until next year, uh, Harbaugh is looking into doing this year's practice much further away than, than Florida. Europe, perhaps. Word is Rome. Rome, <laughs> Italy. Okay. Um, that You know what? That would definitely broaden their horizons, you would think. Yeah, and basketball teams do that. Like, all college basketball teams, or all major college basketball teams What, they're do. allowed to do it, like, once every four years, the, right? Is it four or three or four? I thought it was every four, unless yeah, that's Yeah, they do these foreign tours, and, and nobody seems to have a problem with that because that's looked at as educational. But it's also, isn't that in the, in the summer or the off-season, not in the middle of... The spring. Yeah, and that's how he's going to get around this. He's going to do it instead of doing it over spring break. He's going to do it like the week after the semester ends and late because Michigan, Michigan's school ends ridiculously early, um, like April twenty fourth. So, and some teams are still doing spring practice at that point. So he's going to do it that week afterward. I think, and this is just you know kind of rambling here, but I once had a conversation with a college coach a couple of years ago about the idea of you guys ought to scout the European Junior National Track and Field Championships. I was like, what? I was like, you'd probably find if it's some some discus throwers or something, you'd probably find some future left tackles or defensive linemen in the same Margus Hunt spirit. Somebody should headquarter their football camp wherever that is that year. And I bet you they'd find some athletes who'd be like, hmm, let me check this out. Interesting you would say that, right? Because we are – this is – we're recording this on Monday. And on Sunday, the Patriots got went to the Super Bowl behind a uh, enormous performance from a receiver who barely played college football, was much more of a lacrosse player. And so that – I mean, he did play high school football. He was recruited he did. out of he high had, school. And he – you know, I went back and checked. According to Rivals, he had two – 
Division one offers, but I heard from his high school coaches who said he actually had five, and one of those was Mark Mangino at Kansas. So it's not like he didn't have, you know, I mean, that's a, they were a power, a big six team. What were you even calling it back then? Now it's power five, but uh, program. It's uh, just BCS conference. BCS conference, thank you. Um, so there was interest, just he was really good at lacrosse too. And um, I think somebody pointed this out on social media. The Patriots, two Big Ten guys, or two other Big Ten guys, from one's from Ohio State is a rugby guy, uh, their special team star, and the other one is obviously a lacrosse guy from Penn State. That's all I'm saying. You make a good point. You can find athletes anywhere. Maybe, you know, we've already got the Australian punter pipeline. Who's going to be the first program to say, you know what, we got to be looking into rugby a little bit more? Um, well, remember, the 49ers had that guy, and I'm blanking on his name, who was a rugby star who actually played. Ty Montgomery, I think, was a really good lacrosse player. Uh, he's from Dallas or somewhere near Dallas. And before I think he was there, he was a good lacrosse player and he turned out to be a good, a good running back, even though he was a receiver in college. So we, we see a lot of these crossover athletes. I mean, Dwight Freeney was, was, I think a really good soccer player. Obviously I know I've written a lot about Josh Rosen being a, a great young tennis player as was Drew Brees. So, so we see it. It's, it's, you know, what I'd be curious is when you see the really odd double, if you saw like the left tackle who was also a great golfer or about, you know, or some some sport that you would never think. I mean, you're not going to see a jockey play major college football, somebody, you know, stature wise. You'll often also see stories about guys, especially like unusually large guys who, oh, they didn't play football until their senior year of high right. school or something like that. But I don't know that I can recall anybody who literally like. They go and get who's never played football, and they say, you know what? This guy's a good enough athlete. We're just going to teach him how to play. Yeah, but that happens with basketball. I mean, guys, Jimmy Graham. Jimmy Graham's a great football player. He was a basketball player. True. Antonio Gates. Um, but can you think of anybody that signed as a recruit who hadn't played football at that point? Yeah, I mean, Margus Hunt was that for SMU. There's a, a – Gerard DeBeer is how he pronounced his name at Arizona – was another one of these guys. I think he's from South Africa. He was a he was a thrower in track and field. I mean, there are examples of that. They and he, I think Arizona had to beat somebody else to get him. Maybe beat Houston or I forgot who else they had to beat to get him. So it has happened a little bit. What else do you want to talk about in the college football world today? Uh, I had a question for you, and it's a question I've asked some some people more informed than than certainly me and probably you which was you and I try to steer clear of politics, correct, on the podcast? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so on Friday there was the inauguration, and on Saturday there was a massive uh, marches all over the country. And I, one, of the, uh, one of the things I, I saw in the wake of it was Greg Popovich, San Antonio Spurs coach, who's the Olympic basketball coach, had a very lengthy uh, comment before a game uh, about our new president and a lot of things, not just the president, but also uh, the press conference, I think, that had come out of it from Sean Spicer and the reaction. And it got me thinking, it seems to me like basketball coaches are much more willing to talk about politics than football coaches are. Now, and I mean active football coaches. I'm not talking about Barry Switzer or Mike Ditka, who have you know long since retired. I mean, Mike Leach. Yeah, Mike Leach is really one of the few guys, and you know, he's talked about he endorsed Donald Trump, but there's a you know a personal relationship. Donald Trump was very supportive of Leach as well. Um, I'm not sure Leach is engaged a lot in talking about the actual politics, other than you know the supporting of it. Now he will, you know, if you get him in the right mood, he'll talk about just about anything. Whereas with basketball, and it's not just pro basketball coaches, because I've noticed this, um, and this is kind of a, uh, for example, one of the coaches I followed on social media, and it's really because he's a friend of a friend, is a guy named Matt O'Brien, uh, and he is a basketball coach at Maine. And so I had asked him this question, and I had asked it of, some football coaches I know, and I'd ask it also from our friends Pat Forty and Dennis Dodd and Pete Thamel, because certainly Pat and Pete are way more uh, connected in college basketball than I am. And so I had asked them why they thought it was. And so Matt's answer, and he's used his, his Twitter feed for, you know, you see a lot of politics on it. And his answer was he thinks it's for a couple of reasons. 
inherent culture of basketball. By that, I mean it's more an individualized sport. Everyone gets a chance to score. In football, the O-line isn't asking when are they going to get the ball. Because of that, I think the freedom of expression of oneself is more predominant. So I think coaches and players feel more comfortable expressing their views regardless of what the company line is. The NFL and football scream company line and everyone do your job, stay in your lane. The other reason to me is that I think the NBA locker room is more Democrat slash liberal. I read a story and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on where it was. The story mentioned that there are more Trump voters in NFL locker rooms. Um, if that's true, I could see everyone saying st- st- uh, leave politics out of what we're doing. Um, and I think that was, you know, his response. And, and uh, you know, Forty and Dot also kind of came along the same way, as well as another coach I spoke to who said, I think it has a lot to do with football coaches being more... Guarded. Guarded because, A, they do not, they're, they're leery of their presidents and, and board members who are probably really political in nature to begin with. So like, I'm not messing with them and they're more uncomfortable with, with broaching that. Whereas college basketball coaches seem a little more comfortable. Another person I talked to, and I, I, this part I buy is, uh, that college football coaches tend to have less time to know what goes on outside their front door or outside the front door of their football complex. And so they're really insulated and they're just focusing on what they can do. Whereas college basketball coaches seem like they are a little more out there. Well, let's start there, right? Like, let's take it outside of politics. You know, there is no question that, first of all, basketball coaches are seem to be, and I'm not saying like this is a true, you know, 100% on either side, but in it, for for the vast majority, basketball coaches seem to be much more worldly, much more aware of what's going on in the world. Football coaches, at least publicly, you know, are often are much more prone to, you know, I mean, look at what Nick Saban said this year, right? They didn't know that that election day that he said he didn't know the election was that day, which nobody believes, but it's kind of symbolic of right, the typical coach, like, you know, all I'm thinking about right now is Clemson. All I'm thinking about right now is Penn State. You know, I don't, you don't hear basketball coaches say that. Now, I don't really understand why football coaches are so insulated. Like, I get that they have more players to oversee, but they also have a very short season. I've never understood why when you walk into a football complex in May or June, everybody is, is still really busy and and working 12 hour days. Like, why are they so insulated? Why are, do they live in a bubble? That's where that's your starting point to me. Secondly, basketball coaches are much more media friendly. Other than like a Mike Krzyzewski, most of the major basketball coaches, a Bill Self, um, certainly Calipari, though he picks who he's friendly with, uh, are pretty accessible. You know, you can call them uh, if they know you. Football coaches are much more inside, you know, the media is somebody you keep at a distance. So certainly if you start with that attitude, then you're not likely to to just, uh, if a reporter asks you about the election or about politics, to just give you a nice, friendly answer. And then the last thing I thought of was, what do Steve Kerr and uh, Greg Popovich have in common? They're in absolutely no danger of ever being fired. So they probably feel a little bit more free to just talk about whatever they want. That's a good point. Look, Mike Leach, I don't think ever worries about, am I going to get fired for speaking up? So I think he falls in, the, in line with that as well. And there are plenty of football coaches that don't have to worry about that. Didn't Urban Meyer endorse? John or, Kasich. Yeah. Sort of, sort of endorsed John Kasich leading up to the Republican primary in Ohio. I'm guessing that was just a, you know, <laughs> it's always good to stay on the right side of your governor. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I don't, I've never asked Urban Meyer about it, and I'm not sure he'd probably want to talk about it much. Look, and part of the reason why I think you and I are reluctant to engage in this on our podcast and, and write about it in detail is just because you're going to piss people off one way or the other. Yeah, I, I have no idea what the demographics would be of our podcast listeners, like which, which you know, red or blue. I have no idea. I do think it's pretty obvious that college football fans in general because of where college football is popular would be very much in the majority like 
If you were to ask every college football fan in America, who did you vote for in the presidential election? I'm sure it would have been majority Trump, right? Well, if you look at the map on the uh, the electoral map for college, yeah, then I it believe would, Trump it would... won every SEC state, every Big Twelve state, and the only Big Ten states. And this is in part right because of the swing states were in the Midwest. The only uh, swing states that Hillary Clinton won were like the newer, right, like New Jersey and Maryland, which most people don't really count as Big Ten states yet. And Illinois, of course, Illinois. Yeah, so I think there's there's some of that. And I really I don't think what we're in right now really is this is a conservative issue. This is a liberal issue. Well, I think we can agree, right, that the election and the campaigns are one thing. Once somebody is elected to be the president, you right, come you're under scrutiny of you're our president. You're going to be praised or I'm not saying it doesn't still fall along party lines to a large degree, but what happened this weekend with the White House press secretary, like that should tick off people no matter what your party is. I mean, just you and I, right, as media members, it's it's really horrifying to think that the highest office in the land is basically declaring war against the media. Yeah. I Not mean, basically. He, he literally, <laughs> in his first uh, speech as president after the inauguration, the one at the CIA, said, I am at war with the media. Well, how much do you see and it could be show up on your on your Facebook it could show up on your somebody retweeting it where you see something and you're like it's a story it's been published somewhere something that just you know kind of popped up because the problem I have with certain things is if you knowingly publish something that is very reckless and you never checked out or anything and there's some harm that comes of it you should be responsible from it as a, as a media entity. And I'm not talking about like, oh, this, you predicted this to happen and it didn't happen. I'm talking about something that's complete BS and you just kind of passed it along and fed the flames of it. So I've been, I've thought about this a little bit with the whole fake news phenomenon. I think somebody could totally pull that off in college, in particular with recruiting. Like that's happened before though. Where somebody created an athlete and, you know, got people to go and all of a sudden. I'm saying somebody right now could start a website called like secprospects.com. I didn't look to see if that exists. And just make up stories about stuff that they know the fan bases want to hear, right? Like uh, that, you know, we were just talking about Marvin Wilson, right? Like LSU fans already believe he's going to come there. So you could probably get a, a large number of LSU fans to click on a story that says, that's completely made up, that says like, Marvin Wilson tells best friend he's going to LSU. Okay, and? I'm just saying people would believe it. People will believe whatever they want to hear that's favorable to their own school. Right. So, you you know, I don't know if there's money to be made in that or not. And it, certainly it's not, not going to get the, as massive a number of clicks as the uh, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump fake news that people got rich off during the election. But, like, you could totally see a scenario where that would that would work. And and frankly, that's what's so troubling right now. Um, I feel like we're in an age or we're entering an age where all these forces are conspiring to make it where nobody's going to believe anything soon. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part of this. And we are very, very divided as people. And I feel like that's only getting worse because, you know, no matter what you feel about a certain issue, if a certain person presents it as one as, as such and you don't like that person or you're kind of predisposed to not like where that person's from i mean that's that's not individual thought can i bring this back to football to close this out super bowl matchup is determined and the most interesting thing to me as a predominantly college fan came across uh steve politi who works in uh at the star ledger do you know what school has the most players in the super bowl well, since it's a, a New Jersey-based thing, I'm going to say, and Bill Belichick's team's involved, I'm going to say it's Rutgers. Yes. Rutgers has more players in this Super Bowl than Alabama and whoever, Ohio State, whoever you want to name. Now, just like I hate when people— How many players? Five. And I think that counts somebody who's on a IR practice squad or something. Uh, let's see. You got— Mo Sanu, I know he he was a big factor yesterday for the for the Falcons. And then I want to say that the Patriots have two or three former Rutgers DBs. Yeah, they do. Uh, Devin McCourty is one, or one of them, Cordy twins. So we've we've crapped on Rutgers a lot on this podcast. Let's give a little credit where credit's due. 
that is one thing. They they haven't won a lot of games, but they definitely produced some NFL players under Shiano and then uh, going into uh, the beginning of Kyle Flood. It is pretty interesting that they have that many. So they have they have how many? Five, you said? Correct. So Rutgers has five, and Alabama, LSU, and Stanford have four. Who are the five Rutgers players besides McCourty and Sanu? They are Mohamed Sanu, Devin McCourty, Logan Ryan, Duran Harmon, who I can't say I remember from college, and then an injured player for the Patriots, Jonathan linebacker Jonathan Freeney. So they have one less player than they won games in the last two years combined. Ouch. Yeah. In fairness, though, those guys were all gone. That's one yeah. of the reasons they only won five games. Um, I'm not a big fan of cherry-picking numbers like that for like recruiting, because you'll see that now this week. You'll see people cherry-pick numbers from the recru- Super Bowl rosters to either support or, def- or, or um, shoot down recruiting rankings. Obviously, it's kind of random that these two teams happen to have all the Rutgers players or most of the Rutgers players, but... Again, we spent so much time crapping on that program, and why, what was the Big Ten thinking? I think I did that earlier in this podcast. Let's give a little credit, a little shout-out to Rutgers football. Is that it? That was the shout-out you are going to give? That, that's my shout-out. Do, do you have a different one? I feel like Rutgers actually is, you know, maybe it's part of the style, and maybe it's a little bit of Shiano because he, he definitely had trans, transferred over. They've actually produced quite a few NFL players, though. Since 2008, Ray Rice, Jeremy Zuta, and then guys before them. First-round pick, Kenny Britt. You remember Mike Teal. That's the other McCourty twin. Uh, Courtney Green, Tequan Underwood, who's, I think, kicking around the league as a receiver for a while. Uh, Devin McCourty went the next year to the Patriots. Anthony Davis, do you remember him? He was a first-round pick. Yep. Neighbor of yours. Mohamed um, Sanu, third-round pick that same year. Marcus Cooper, I don't remember him. Steve Boharness, I do remember him, a linebacker. With He got drafted by the Patriots. Juwan Jamison, D.C. Jefferson, who was a quarterback who became a tight end. Kasim Green. There's your Duran Harmon. Uh, Logan Ryan, who's the slot corner now for the Patriots. He was the third-round pick. Michael Burton, don't remember him. Tyler Croft, I don't remember him. Uh, and Leonte Carew, we obviously remember him. Last year. I think it's interesting that of those guys that are in the Super Bowl, Logan Ryan, Harmon, Sanu were all drafted in 2013. No, so, Sanu was 2012. Okay. The point is, like, we are several years removed at this point. Yeah, the only one really new is Leonte Carew. Was drafted last year. You have a lot of third and second round picks here, though. Let's uh, match this up. When was Shiano's last year? Probably 2010, I would guess. His last year was 2011. 11. The end of this uh, era was 2013 draft, 2012 season. So pretty much Shiano deserves almost all the credit for this. It clearly started going downhill under Kyle Flood. Yeah. So, man. And, and they're going to be getting NCAA sanctions from Kyle Flood. So tremendous impact he had on that program. <laughs> <laughs> you had to just zing that one in there, didn't you? As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And you can send your emails for the next podcast to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.